Welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. The Bristol History Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Bristol Cable. The Bristol Cable is the city's media cooperative, owned and created by local people. This week, I spoke with amateur historian Stephen Carter to discuss his research on how profits from the slave trade were fed back into British industry. Stephen got in touch with me after conducting his own research into coal mining in the Forest of Dean. Initially interested in researching the colliery in which his grandfather worked, through this he became interested in Edward Prothero, one of the major coal industrialists in the Forest of Dean in the early 19th century, and also a Bristol merchant, councillor and MP. Through following up on rumours, tip-offs and his own research, Stephen has traced how a substantial amount of the Prothero family wealth was derived first from the slave trade and later from the labour of enslaved people on sugar plantations. During our chat, in which Stephen also read from his research, we discussed the surprising and sometimes obscure ways that profits from the transatlantic slave trade and slavery-reliant industries were channelled back into the British economy. My family history, my ancestors, were from the Forest of Dean, and I discovered they went back a couple of centuries. So... I've been very interested in the Forest of Dean history. I was planning in September last year when I retired to just look at um, a colliery where my grandfather worked and to put together a history of the colliery. But then while I was looking around there, I I came across other things that eventually led to Prothero. And then a friend of mine mentioned that he was involved in slavery, uh, you know, had slavery links. And as I tried to get a bit of background into that, then I was surprised how much I actually uncovered and how strong the links were. I've been reading about the Forest of Dean history for at least 10 years. I'd not come across anything to do with slavery. So when I saw this link, it was a real surprise. I was surprised also how much, thanks to the work of historians in uh, Bristol, how much material was available so that I could look at a lot of specific details. The Bristol History Association and the Bristol Record Society have provided lots of materials that are available freely on the internet. And that really enabled me to get a a detailed picture about what was going on in Bristol with the Protheros. plan to write a book about the Waterloo pit where my grandfather worked, but I stumbled across Edward Prothero and his links with slavery. In the late 18th century, about 500 miners were working around 100 small coal pits in the Forest of Dean. Forest colliers were highly skilled, but most pits were small-scale family concerns and probably less than 25 yards deep. The Industrial Revolution brought wealthy capitalists like Prothero into the forest. 
only affluent outsiders could afford to sink deeper pits to reach the lower coal seams. They erected steam engines to dewater their workings and raise the coal. Many foresters resisted being dispossessed. A riot, for example, erupted in 1831. Edward Prothero invested in forest tram roads, ironworks, and collieries. By 1832, Prothero, the largest outsider, claimed one-tenth of all forest coal. By 1841, he owned 10 collieries with shares in 20 more. Local historians know Prothero's forest enterprises, but his links to slavery have not had much attention. Ian Wright wrote that Prothero invested his proceeds from slavery into an extensive industrial empire of collieries and ironworks in the Forest of Dean. So with Ian's help, I looked into this and uncovered a hidden history. Edward Prothero was not merely linked to slavery, the Protheros were up to their necks in it for generations. Slavery was the ultimate source of their vast wealth, and Edward Prothero, the father of the forest coal field, poured slavery money into the forest's early industrial development in the early 19th century. Stephen traced the roots of Edward Prothero's wealth right back to his great uncle, Captain Philip Prothero, who took charge of several slave ship voyages in the 1730s. For me, the starting point goes right the way back to 1730. It was uh, Edward Prothero's great uncle, Captain Philip Prothero, thanks to the Bristol Record Society. There's lots of records about the sailings of individual ships. It tells me that uh, Captain Prothero sailed six ships, transporting in total something like 2,000 West Africans over to the West Indies, and that would have been the beginnings of the wealth. I picture Captain Philip Prothero on his final journey in December 1737, commanding from the raised quarterdeck of the 90-ton slave ship, the Anne. Travelling the Atlantic Middle Passage from West Africa to Barbados, the last of his six slave voyages. Most of his 25 crew stay on the quarterdeck behind the fortified barricade, along with the enslaved women and children. Perhaps eight of the crew were able seamen. The rest included unwilling recruits, some tricked or forced on board. They watch both the enslaved multitude and the captain. Captain Philip Prothero was the all-powerful apex at the top of this brutal pyramid. Below deck, West African men lie for many hours in appalling conditions, chained, packed tight and stifling. The horrific Middle Passage transported millions of West Africans to lives of enslavement on West Indies sugar plantations. The slave ship stench carries for a mile. The Pilgrim Father's Mayflower was twice the tonnage and carried 102 passengers, but over 400 Africans must endure this two-month journey. Sickness, disease and suicide mean only a 341 of the enslaved will reach Barbados, about 80 die on the Middle Passage. The guiding power in this human suffering, Captain Prothero, is perhaps thinking how he will become like his boss, William Gordon, After shipping 2,000 human cargo to Jamaica, Barbados and Virginia, Captain Prothero has enough wealth, understanding and commercial contacts 
to set up Prothero & Co. His own vessel, the Trial, will carry another 2,000 enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. When he died in 1763, Captain Prothero had accumulated a fortune, including £2,000 in South Sea shares. This was 17 times more money than his brother had acquired by the end of his life as a farmer. Captain Philip left substantial sums to relatives, but provided especially for his nephew, Philip Prothero, the father of Edward. Philip was left maintenance until he was 25, the captain's Bristol house, the residue of his estate, but perhaps even more useful for young Philip Prothero, his uncle's invaluable network of business and social connections. As Stephen has outlined, when he died in 1763, a substantial portion of Captain Philip's wealth and contacts were passed on to his nephew, also called Philip. This Philip, who lived from 1747 to 1803, didn't trade directly in enslaved people, but rather in the sugar that was produced through their labour on West Indian plantations. In 1763, at age 16, nephew Philip, father of Edward, inherited Captain Prothero's Bristol house and ample maintenance. He began trade with a considerable capital and the captain's connections. Captain Prothero's friend, sugar merchant Mark Davis, provided Philip with an apprenticeship and then a partnership. All this boosted Philip into Bristol's merchant elite. Direct trade with the West Indies delivered more reliable profits than slave voyages did. He became one of Bristol's largest sugar importers. He defended West India interests and profited from the brutal forced labor of enslaved people on sugar plantations. In 1793, Philip's considerable fleet of seven vessels trading between Bristol and Jamaica illustrates his success. He went on to add more and more vessels. In 1794, he was a founding member of the Bristol City Bank, financing Bristol and West India interests. In 1803, Philip's will reveals property in the West Indies, Gloucestershire, and his ancestral lands of Wales. From Philip's 112,000 will, Edward received 20,000 pounds. Sugar merchant Philip Prothero's wealth went not only to his son Edward, but also to his two daughters and their clergyman husbands. Philip Prothero's slavery wealth went into some unlikely projects. His two daughters each married Anglican clergymen. Philip brought the Roxall estate at auction and set up his son-in-law, Reverend James Vaughan, as rector. Vaughan, his son and grandson, held on to the Roxall rectorship all the way through the 19th century. Philip paid for his other son-in-law to become the vicar of Silverton. This son-in-law appears in an oil painting called The Pastor's Fireside, at the National Trust Killerton House in Devon. The vicar is reading to Sir Ackland with the family all gathered round. The scene is far removed from the horrors of slavery, as far as you could imagine, but the good vicar owes his seat to the profits derived from plantation labor. 
I did contact the National Trust at Killerton about their painting. I thought they could display an interesting comment about its hidden history. But two months later, they've yet to take up my offer of further information. These clergymen seem to have been exemplary and have celebrated Marie monuments in their churches, but both positions were purchased with slave money. We then came on to Edward Protheroe, the Bristol merchant and MP and Forest of Dean industrialist, who was the primary focus of Stephen's inquiries. Living between 1774 and 1856, Edward was the son of sugar merchant Philip and the great nephew of slave trader Captain Philip Protheroe. Edward Protheroe was a successful merchant in Bristol. Like Bristol's other West India merchants, he enjoyed considerable civic status. He became a councillor, the sheriff, mayor and MP. His 1812 election campaign was aggressively pro-slavery. He continued defending West India interests. His own view of himself is very interesting. He regarded himself as faithfully and zealously representing Bristol with integrity of principle guided by my conscience, and a good patriot and a good Christian, prompting measures beneficial to the public. After the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, Edward Prothero seems to be transferring his wealth from slavery into untainted enterprises. From about 1810, he invested heavily in Forest of Dean tramroads. By 1841, Prothero owned 10 collieries and held shares in 20 others, besides his extensive interests in iron mining. Unaware of Prothero's slavery interests, foresters applauded him for providing 500 jobs and building Cinderford School. Poetess Catherine Drew asked foresters to crown him King of the Forest. As Stephen has said, in investing in industry in the Forest of Dean, Edward Prothero was beginning to transfer his wealth from slavery into other safer business ventures. That he and many of his family were still heavily invested in enslaved people, however, became apparent just a few years after the abolition of slavery in 1833. The Slave Compensation Act of 1837 paid out approximately £20 million to compensate British slave owners for the loss of their, quote, property. Edward Prothero received his cut. Stephen Carter again. Edward Prothero, furthermore, received over £17,000 compensation for his loss of 642 enslaved people on plantations in Jamaica, St. Vincent and Trinidad. Altogether, Edward, two brothers and his cousin claimed compensation for 2,269 enslaved lives. Stephen explained to me that to provide a counterpoint to the Prothero story, he had been able to trace the details of the life of one of the enslaved people listed on Edward Prothero's so-called Endeavour estate in Trinidad in 1834. I managed to get a bit of an idea of, of just one person's life, Eugenia. She was on one of Edward Prothero's plantation in the 1830s, 
but she had been born in the uh, 1780s on St. Lucia. I wanted to reject the Prothero opinion that reduced these so-called slaves to cargo, property or money. I investigated the life of one individual on the slave registers to highlight the fact that she was a person. Eugenia Jehiakim, four foot nine, aged 47, sugar plantation laborer, was the first of 72 enslaved people listed in 1834 on Edward Prothero's Endeavour estate in Trinidad. Even pronouncing her name is difficult because she moved from French to Spanish to British plantations. Eugenia means well-born, but she was born into enslavement on French-held St. Lucia in 1787. 1787 was the same year that the Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade was formed, that Thomas Clarkson visited Bristol to gather evidence, that Clarkson and others persuaded Wilberforce to head the parliamentary campaign for the next 20 years. But emphasizing only Clarkson's undoubtable bravery and Wilberforce's amazing grace can obscure the preceding century plus of horrors and brutality. On St. Lucia, Eugenia learned to speak a Creole mixture of French and African languages. She was just four in 1791, when French Revolution agents spread ideas of freedom and equality. Many of the enslaved escaped into St. Lucia's hilly, forested interior. They fought brigand wars for their freedom, successfully forcing plantation owners off the island and resisting British invasions. Meanwhile, Eugenia's French plantation owner probably fled taking the child Eugenia to Trinidad, where she was sold on to a Spanish estate. When Eugenia was 10, the British captured Trinidad from Spain. At 15, in 1802, Emperor Napoleon reimposed slavery in the Caribbean. In 1807, Britain abolished the slave trade, but Eugenia, aged 27, remains enslaved. The following year, Eugenia had sex with a white male, the precise circumstances are unknown, but many plantation owners and managers sexually abused enslaved women. The next year, Eugenia's daughter Adele was born and classified then as a mulatto, indicating one black and one white parent. After the Napoleonic Wars ended, the sugar plantation, including Eugenia and Adele, passed to a British owner. By 1832, this estate was combined with the Endeavour estate and acquired by Edward Prothero. From August the 1st, 1834, buying or owning slaves became illegal within the British Empire. Eugenia, however, now with four daughters, faced six more years working on the plantation in a period of so-called apprenticeship, supposedly to educate and prepare her for freedom. In July 1836, when she was 49 and still working on the Endeavour Sugar Plantation, Edward Prothero claimed over £3,500 compensation for Eugenia and her four daughters and the other 67 enslaved on his Endeavour estate. Finally, in 1838, after protests in Trinidad and the UK, Eugenia, aged 51, and her daughters were fully emancipated but without any economic resources to change life for herself or her daughters. Eugenia probably had to continue working on the same sugar plantation. Edward Prothero continued to expand his industrial empire in the Forest of Dean. In 1840, 
when Eugenia was 53, Prothero built a school at Cinderford. Locals, unaware of these links with slavery, celebrated Prothero's generosity and suggested crowning this gentleman King of the Forest. In 2015, naming a housing estate in Prothero's honor was considered, but thankfully rejected. History has forgotten Eugenia, like the thousands of other people whose enslaved lives created the vast Prothero wealth. Finally, Stephen summed up his findings linking Edward Prothero's development of the coal industry in the Forest of Dean, with three generations of family wealth derived first from the slave trade and later from the labour of enslaved people on sugar plantations. Ralph Anstis's book on forest miners and the 1926 general strike is entitled Blood on Coal. This phrase, blood on coal, represented their hardship, struggles and heroism. Profits from Captain Prothero's human cargo, nearly 4,000 enslaved people, flowed into nephew Philip's sugar merchant career and wealth. This nephew Philip traded in slave-produced goods, financed slave plantations, and provided substantial capital for his son's inheritance. Edward developed and invested this in forest tramways, ironworks, and collieries. Forest historians attest Edward Prothero's important contribution to the Dean's early industrial development. But almost unknown is this arterial channel of money flowing from slavery into forest industries. Besides hardworking, hard-pressed forest colliers, enslaved Africans provide another layer of blood on the coal. I was only able to do this investigation during lockdown thanks to a lot of help and encouragement from forest historian Ian Wright, slavery experts Mark Steeds, Roger Ball and Madge Dresser, and genealogist Ruth Hecht. But I also felt indebted to other people that I never met who made information freely available online, including the Bristol Record Society and the Bristol History Association. Of course, I also benefited from the Bristol History Podcasts. Since my initial chat with Stephen a couple of months ago, he provided me with this interesting and thoughtful update regarding the dissemination of his research. Investigating this slavery topic has changed my views about how history works. Before, I thought you just had to find an interesting bit of information, tell some relevant people, and history would grow. While doing this project, though, I've noticed a different process. It's only anecdotal, but I see a clear pattern. Although some are willing to publicise the story, my local Forest of Dean History Society, the Bristol Radical History Group, and your history podcasts, but silence is more common. As I research the Protheros and their associates, I stumble across lots of links between slavery wealth and buildings that are now hotels, private schools, retirement homes, churches and National Trust properties. Enthusiastically, I have emailed these and offered to share my information and evidence. The responses can be pretty uniform, polite but basically not wanting to know. Promises to get in touch, but then months pass by and I hear nothing. 
These various people seem polite and kind and would be appalled to be linked with racism in any way. Nevertheless, the overall effect is that slavery is downplayed and obscured. Many people play a part in keeping the history mild and palatable. I suppose if this building is your business or your church, or you know the family living in the National Trust property, you don't want mobs appearing and causing damage. But this denial has a distorting effect on history. I thought it was enough for something to be true or supported by evidence, but now I see history can only become history if, if it's acceptable. This is harmful because history is an important part of our identity. My Forest of Dean ancestry means a lot to me. If slavery is regularly downplayed or hidden, it means some people are denied their history, and in a way they're being denied their identity. I'd even say it's an injustice and a violation. Just as slavery violated people's lives, so too hiding the story is a further violation. We don't need to feel inappropriate guilt, but if we hide the truth, we're colluding with oppression. Many thanks to Stephen Carter for chatting with me this week. I think his work stands as a testament as to what is possible to achieve as an amateur researcher prepared to make the best use of the tools that are available. Thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then you can listen to previous episodes. Previous episodes that touch on the topic of slavery are numbers 4, 30 and 46. I'd also like to draw your attention to some interesting work that has been done recently on how slavery helped to build the modern global economy. Padraig Scanlon in Slave Empire has recently shown how the global trade connections and international commodity markets in sugar, tobacco and rice that were built on the backs of enslaved people only continued to expand after the abolition of the slave trade. As Farah Dabwiwala has pointed out in a recent Guardian review, quote, ending slavery didn't stop the gigantic system of trade and exploitation it had spawned. On the contrary, it was meant to enhance it. The British government paid out colossal sums to compensate slave owners, but nothing to enslaved people themselves. Instead, the law abolishing slavery forced them to continue to labour for years on their existing plantations as unpaid apprentices." End quote. So the seemingly liberal ethos of free labour and free trade, which the British Empire came to embrace, was incompatible with slavery, but not with the continued exploitation and global trafficking of non-white, low-paid workers. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Bristol History Podcast, Please give us a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can email bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com.